Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. Whom to marry and when will it happen? These two questions define every woman's existence, regardless of where she was raised or what religion she does or doesn't practice. These dual contingencies govern her until they're answered, even if the answers are nobody and never. So writes Kate Bolick in her new book, Spinster, Making a Life of One's Own. Not coincidentally, these contingencies she's identified here often define the way we write women's lives biographically as well. And one of the great contributions of Spinster is that it illuminates an alternate route, a different way of telling the stories of women's lives, as existences fashioned bravely and boldly on their own. Today, I'm going to be talking with Kate Bolick about Spinster. Hi, Kate. Thanks for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just begin by telling us a bit about yourself. My name is Kate Bolick. I live in Brooklyn, New York. I grew up in Massachusetts, and I've been working as an editor and writer for the past 15 years. And I guess that's who I am. Should I say more? <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> um, I think we'll, we'll come back to you. Uh, so I first encountered your work on this subject in The Atlantic, but it's my understanding that this project predated that article. Could you talk a bit about how Spencer came to be? Yeah. So uh, in two, let's see, in, in 2000 is, is when I, I first came across the journalist and novelist Neith Boyce, who lived in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And I became very interested in her and started thinking about single women as an historical archetype. And I, I started collecting examples of women who had lived outside the bounds of marriage somehow or questioned that imperative. Uh, and in 2006, I thought, you know, why don't I try writing a book about some of these women? And at that point, I was uh, most interested in Neith Boyce, uh, Maeve Brennan, who I also write about in Spinster, and a woman named Tess Lessinger, who I did not include in the book. And and so the my idea was that these were three women who had lived a long time before me, but whose lives and writings were very compelling and it helped. And, and they're their lives and writings about marriage versus not marriage were very compelling and it helped me think through my own questions, you know, like roughly a hundred years later. And so I thought I would write a kind of idiosyncratic memoir biography mashup where I would be presenting their lives and what I in the present day was learning from them. So I, that was the idea. And when I sat down to start to do it, I just actually couldn't do it. And I actually just cried all the time whenever I tried. And it was, it was, it was so hard. And, and really the problem was I was too young and too close to the questions I was asking myself. There wasn't any sense of an ending. I didn't know how my life was going to turn out. And so addressing it in writing felt too loaded and scary. And I put it aside and decided, forget it. I don't want to write about myself at all. That's, um, you know, that way madness lies. So I uh, continued on at the time I had been working at a glossy Condé Nast home decor magazine. And I just devoted myself to that and to different kinds of reviewing and essayistic journalism that was not written in the first person and, uh, and, and pushed the, that whole project aside. But 
I never stopped thinking about those women and I never stopped accumulating them. And then in the summer of 2011, the Atlantic asked me to write a cover story about how the, the recession in the contemporary economy was reshaping dating marriage and the family. And they wanted me to write that story in the first person, drawing on my own experiences as a then unmarried, you know, never married 38 year old woman. And as I started doing the research and reporting for the article and, and getting a sense of the contemporary landscape, I, I actually felt like those women that I had been thinking about and talking to in my head for so long were like perched on my shoulder, learning about the contemporary moment along with me. Mm-hmm. And so when, it, you know, it wasn't proper to put those women into that article because the article was about the present day and not about history. But after the article came out and it went viral and I started hearing from young women and men all over the world. And I realized that that book that I had wanted to write in 2006 and the book that I needed even before then, a book that was talking about marriage versus not marriage and exploring these ideas in a way that felt intimate and accessible and readerly, it was a book that still needed to exist. And that now I was older and not as afraid of the material. The, The process of doing the research had taught me so much about myself and where I fit into my contemporary moment. And I, I felt like I could very comfortably claim the authority of the big sister. <laughs> and, and so that's the, the book that I proposed to write and, you know, ended up writing. So it's a kind of, it's, it's like when I tried to write it in 2006, I didn't have any context mm-hmm. and what the, research and reporting of that 2011 article did was teach me context. And that allowed me to regard the women I was writing about differently and in more depth. It is interesting because as a writer, you do often feel like your ideas have to come fully formed and sometimes you're just not ready for them. And I think that's what the stories of writers can really also show us is that it takes time to sort of to forge that ability and mature so that you can get the story out that you've had for quite some time. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I've been teaching at New York University this semester and one of the faculty members there, I, I, I was giving a talk and she, when she introduced me for the talk, she said, you know, Kate has the courage of her eccentricities. And I really <laughs> loved that. And I passed that on to my students that, you know, you know, and, and what she was referring to is that, you know, I've been thinking about single women in a historical context since the year 2000 very actively, but it took me until the year, you know, 2015 to actually publish a book about it. And so I try to stress to my students that it takes a really long time sometimes for ideas to develop and that we just have to hold on to our enthusiasms yeah. as long as we can. So now I have yes. to ask what happened what? to Tess Schlesinger? How come she didn't make the cut? Well, you know, there were others who didn't make the cut as well. And what it came down to is I had to choose, you know, I I actually originally chose six. That seemed like a manageable amount. I didn't want to write about too many women Mm -hmm. because then it would just feel too crowded and I wouldn't be able to go deeply enough. Um, So I can tell you about the one I killed off in a second. (laughs) But so I, but in in the end, I decided that I had to choose only the ones who had, had actually influenced me the most. Mm -hmm. So where Tess Schlesinger was a fascinating figure and a fascinating writer, but I hadn't, she hadn't actually changed the course of my life mm-hmm. in the way that these other women had that I decided to write about. 
Um, so what made you settle upon the word spinster for the title as opposed to the, the glamorous sounding Latin or some other word? <laughs> um, I just, you know, I've always felt a strange fondness for the spinster herself. And, um, and I, so, so there's that. I've just always liked the word or the idea of the woman who was alone. And, and she seems to me an, an autonomous and inscrutable figure that we think we know who the spinster is, but really we have no idea what she's up to behind the door of her home because she's alone doing whatever she wants. Um, so there's my kind of historical fondness for it. Uh, there's also the fact that you know, nobody uses the word spinster seriously anymore it's not part of our everyday vernacular but we all agree on what she is you know an old dried up lonely old woman who lives alone with too many cats is the like, standard definition or idea of what a spinster is and that i find that to be really interesting that we um that that figure doesn't really exist yet the word for it still does and the common understanding of it and and then also you know, and then or more let's say because of that it to me the word very immediately broadcasts that we still have conflicting attitudes toward the single woman so that's why i wanted to use it as the title because it encapsulates so much and it, it also speaks to history and because i include so much history in the book i wanted to signal that and uh and then you know w- before the book came out i would when i had just had like a copy of the cover or something and I would show it to people and some people actually physically recoiled when they saw the word spinster. It's like, it's, it really touches some people to the core. I mean, it was like primarily women, single women in their forties who were feeling that way. So I thought that just was so interesting that such a, an archaic word mm-hmm. could still resonate. And so that's why I chose it. Interesting. Cause it does feel like a bit of a reclamation because it's such a an inspiring and, and positive take on, on the condition of spinsterhood. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the book, the book feels so joyful. Then <laughs> yeah. the cover is so joyful as well. And so as you mentioned, it's, it's quite a genre bending book in many respects. Um, early on, you call it a true story about a series of fictions and it weaves together biographical writing and autobiographical writing. How did you juggle the two, the tensions between the two and, um, and navigate that? Was it, it was especially in the composition of the book? Was it like now I'm going to do a biographical chapter, or or was it much? Did it just kind of come along? Oh my god, it was incredibly hard, yeah. and and you know I knew without a doubt that that was the form the book had to take. Mm-hmm. So from the outset, but how I was going to achieve that was not clear to me. So it took me about nine months to just plot it out about where everything would go, and so I I got a there's this adhesive chalkboard materials that you can stick onto your wall oh, and make wow. it into a chalkboard. Yeah, it's really cool. I, I got it on Amazon. We should all have that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I drew on that like a, a kind of graph or a chart and the, the names of the women I write about go down the, the vertical left-hand side and then horizontally across the top, I had different ca- the different categories, memoir, biography, cultural moment, mm. and um, or no, no, no. Let, let me, let me, how did I have it? I mean, it was memoir, like at the moment in my life that that woman was speaking to. That's what I meant by memoir. Biography was the moment in her life that I was speaking to in the book because I couldn't take on everybody's entire life. Right. Um, so it was the memoir, the biography, the historical slash cultural moment that she lived inside of that I wanted 
you know, to illustrate in kind of which side of that. And then the theme that I wanted her to speak to, because all of them could have, in a way, all of them could have spoken to every theme. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and because I, I knew also that I, I needed to write about them in the order in which they came into my life not in their chronological birth order. And I knew that that was going to be confusing for the reader, but I just couldn't do it any other way. I needed to make my own life the chronology. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in the um, in that art category of, of the chart, that was, um, oh my gosh, wait, I've already lost my site. Memoir, biography, historical moment. Uh, oh, and theme. So in the theme category, I, I had to choose which one she would speak to. And um, so it took, a, yeah, it took about nine months to plot all of that out because although I had been reading about these women and reading their works for many, many years, I hadn't thought about them in a systematic way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, that just required more research and thinking and kind of puzzling out. Yeah, it, it's extraordinary because it reads so seamlessly. But as a biographer, I was reading it. And I was like, this must have been an absolute bugbear to figure out the puzzle. Like, it's so... It's just so beautifully done, but it is, you can tell technically it looks really hard. I, was, I, was <laughs> I'm so, I'm, I appreciate so much that you appreciate that because it, it does feel like the most kind of like underappreciated aspect of the book where, yes. you know, and it was the hardest part of it. it. Absolutely. It works brilliantly, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's a stunning achievement, I think. Um, so what exactly was your research process like for the biographical parts and also for the, the autobiography, the memoir parts? Did you have to go back and sort of research your own past to, to work through those? I did. So I'll start with the biographical part. I actually, at the very beginning, the first couple of months of the research, I hired a research assistant and asked her to make a dossier on each of the women I was writing about. And in, in that dossier, I just wanted like, what are the, what's the list of the most important books written about her? What are the go-to places I should be in just a, a, a landscape of who that person was uh, so that I wouldn't waste all of my time trying to figure that out myself, right. but instead could just go to the, the main books and make sure I had uh, had that all under my belt. And then, um, and so then, yeah, it just was a, a ton of reading. And then in the cases of some of the women who still, who have physical places where they lived still existing, like uh, Edith Wharton, the country house that she designed in Western Massachusetts, I went and spent a week there. Um, and so during, in the evenings, the Mount is what the house is called. And, and, the the mount put me up at a hotel it was like a writing residency and then during the day i could i just had free roaming uh, what's the word i'm looking for i just had free access to the house like roaming so privileges I, yeah roaming exactly roaming privileges that could so i would just i just brought my laptop laptop and stayed there all day working on my edith wharton chapter and that was incredibly helpful because her that house is an autobiographical house. It's one that she designed according to her own architectural and decor principles. And so to be inside of it and actually feeling what that felt like really did bring me closer to Edith. Um, I, I, so that, that was really helpful. And um, Edna St. Vincent Millay, you, know, you can still go visit her house in upstate New York. And so that was less helpful. I, less, I spent less time there, but that, that was part of it too. And then with Maeve Brennan, uh, the one who lived most recently, she died in 1993. Uh, I was able to find her last friend. And that was a very incredible visit to to meet her. And she gave me a huge folder of her own Maeve Brennan memorabilia. And, and that really 
I learned so much about Maeve that did not exist in her biography because her biographer hadn't spoken to that woman. So that, that was really interesting. Um, and then for the autobiographical parts, I, I had to just dig, I, you know, I, I, for many, many years, I kept a journal. So I dug out all of my old journals and old boxes of letters and just really reacquainted myself with my young self. And that was a strange process. And to be living so deeply inside the past, like for a while, the people I loved and knew, you know, in my 20s were so present in my present day that it was disorienting. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it just, I had to figure out who, and then, and I also, oh, you know, another thing I did, um, and this is something I've had my students do is, uh, I, I'm call, I call it a personal anthropology questionnaire. So my, my question was like, okay, I know what I, okay. I was taking the, the part I was trying to acquaint myself with most were my first five years out of college. And the reason why is because when I started the book, I thought that it was going to be a book about my thirties. I didn't intend to be writing about my twenties, but then I realized I had to for various reasons. And once I realized that, that's why I had to go back into the old journals and letters. And so I could remember my favorite books from that time period or movies or whatever, you know, I could remember and I could also see evidence of them because I would write about them in my journals, but I couldn't remember very much about the cultural moment in which I lived. What were the kind of mass cultural products that were uh, existing around me that I either was or was not absorbing? So I created just a big, another dossier of the big blockbuster movies, the best-selling <laughs> books, the big political moments and, and just kind of situated myself historically the way that I was situating the women in the book historically. And that was really useful as well. I just hadn't ever stopped to do that and realize that, wow, like Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton, that was going on during my first real job. And that was something, you know, as I was trying to figure out what it means to be a woman, that was a really huge part of, of, of that moment Absolutely. or, you know, or Google was founded, right, you know, right as I started working. So, yeah, that, that's how I handled all that. That was fascinating. Um, so we've mentioned Edith Wharton, and I really appreciated your frank frankness throughout the book, but particularly when you mentioned in writing about Edith Wharton that you'd briefly forgotten that she was an actual person. Yeah. Uh, because as a biographer, I find we're constantly trying to remember that these are real people, which sounds horrible, but it arises from the fact that you're telling yourself a story and you're crafting a story for other people. So to, to such an extent, you get involved in the story that you think you know it and you can be blinded to the reality of the person's circumstances. And in this instance, for you, it was that Wharton had to work hard to become an author. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, that tension of using someone's story, but also remembering that it is their story, even though it's tied to your story. Oh, you know, I, I felt is. shameless about that, like, I, or shameless in my, uh, that I, that I was shamelessly taking these, their lives mm -hmm. in, in whatever I wanted from them. Like that, that was the freedom of not being an actual biographer. Mm -hmm. And so, so so with, with, with Edith in particular, it was more that I had forgotten she was a real person just because she's such a larger than life figure in my own literary imagination. I love her novels so much. And because I live in this city where she was born and spent her life, that being New York City, you know, I can just see that the grandeur of her time. She was so wealthy. She just came not only from a different time, from, but from a different class. And so th those were barriers 
to for me to seeing her as an actual human with actual frailties and weaknesses. And once I did, and once I was seeing her own insecurities, you know, reading about it in her biography, reading it in her memoirs and letters, it, uh, it, that process allowed me to see her as a person and see that she wasn't just on a, I don't know, she wasn't just a godlike figure for me to revere, Mm -hmm. but, um, but someone I could, who was a fellow human being who I could actually learn something from that was more than literary, I suppose, like kind of extra literary. So you've got five women and we've mentioned some of them, but if you could just um, name each of them really quickly. Yeah. So people know who they are. So in, in, in the order in which I write about them, so it's Neith Boyce, the 19th century uh, journalist and novelist, then Edna St. Vincent Millay, who was the most famous American poet in the early 1900s. So then there's, there's Maeve Brennan, who was Irish born and lived in America for most of her life and was, uh, at mid-century, a columnist and for the New Yorker as well as a fiction writer. And then Edith Wharton, famous 19th century and early 20th century novelist and Charlotte Perkins Gilman, also same time period, late 19th, early 20th, feminist activist and writer. And you mentioned earlier that there were some others. So was it a matter of, of these being the five that fit into the puzzle that you had on the blackboard? It was was more, I mean, I chose them first according to, I I decided that these out of everyone were the five who had influenced me the most. Mm -hmm. And so I, then I put them on the blackboard and then it was a matter of figuring out how to show that story best. Um, And so, you know, something that they all have in common and that was important. Let's see, like, you know, because I'm writing about single women and ambivalence around marriage, uh, I, I think that topic, generally speaking, is so underwritten about and misunderstood that it comes attached with a lot of stereotypical thinking. And I, to me, my own domestic urges are very strong, are a very strong part of who I am. And I think that seems antithetical to someone who's choosing not to marry, right? Like we, our image of the woman who's choosing not to marry is a rebel or a, like a wanderer, someone who's rejecting the domestic sphere. And it, that's not me at all. And that, neither was that the case with any of these women. And so that, I didn't really understand that until I was deep into the research of the book, but it was very interesting to me that I was drawn to them for, you know, for conscious reasons, because they, I liked the ways in which they address these questions. But then there are also these uh, less immediately visible to me affinities that made them speak to me as, as strongly as they did. Mm-hmm. And, and one of those being a real, uh, you know, kind of interest in and an affection for the home and what that means, what the home means, what it feels like, what it looks like, etc. Mm-hmm. This seems like a rather unfair question, but I'm going to ask it. Did you have a favorite? I'd say I, it, it's funny when the book, when the book first came out and people would ask, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I really felt so close to all of them, but it really is Maeve Brennan. She I was, thought it was actually, yeah. I don't know why, but I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, she was the first and she was the, she's the one who really remains with me the most presently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's because of her, um, her, I mean, why is that exactly? Um, I'm asking, you know, her, I, her voice, I, I still have not ever read anything like her voice and, 
it, it's it's so thoughtful and deep and stylish. And she was uh, as a writer, she was very invested in the reader and always being mindful that there was a reader reading her words. And there, so there's a kind of way that she's being considerate of the reader as she's telling her stories that makes her work so deeply pleasurable. And then because she's the most untethered of all of the women I write about, I think I have a kind of protective feeling for her that um, I, yeah, I just want to take care of her a little bit. Like the rest of them were all pretty much taken care of, <laughs> but Maeve needs a little TLC. <laughs> Do you think it makes a difference also that you met her friend? Oh, that's, that's a, yes, probably. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Without a doubt. Yes. I hadn't thought of that, but yes. And I think of her friend often. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, definitely. It, yeah. And, it, and it, kind of what you were speaking to earlier about remembering the, that this person you're writing about as a person, mm-hmm. right. It really showed me other dimensions of her. Yeah. I also wanted to be sure that we mentioned Carolyn Heilbrunn, who's pretty much the patron saint of women writing about women. Um, how did you first encounter her work and how has it influenced your own? Oh, I'm so glad that you want to talk about her. I, al- I always want to talk about her. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I had never heard of her until the year she died because I read her obituary. And so that was the early 2000s. Maybe it was 2004. I can't remember. And I just was reading her obituary in the New York Times. And I thought, my God, what a fascinating person. Why do I not know about her? So I went immediately to the bookstore and bought her Writing a Woman's Life and just, you know, read it that night or wherever. As you know, it's a very short yeah. book. And it's the kind, it's one of the few books that I can go back and reread. It is so densely packed in the most readable way mm-hmm. with insight and information. I'm constantly learning and relearning from that book. And that it was so eye-opening to me, the way that she was talking about how we write women's lives. And then particularly her idea that one of the ways in which women write their lives is unconsciously by living it. And that, um, you know, at that point in time, I was feeling very at sea with my own life and choices. I, you know, just, I happened to be living in a social milieu where at that age, my early thirties, basically everybody I knew was married. And I, I didn't feel like I had to be married in order to be a whole person. I just didn't really know where I fit in at that point because my, my social world was, was divvying off in that way. And, um, and it made, I felt a lot of insecurity during that time about the choices I had been making with my life. And so to read that, that idea made me think, wow, is that what I am doing? I am writing my own life unconsciously by living it and how liberating that felt. It made me feel more in possession of my own choices. Um, and I'm, has, has anybody written a biography of her yet? I think actually Gloria Steinem wrote uh, one, I think it was, oh, I can't remember if it was before she died or after she, it must've been after she died. Okay. Um, I think that's the only one though. And I'm not, I have not read it. So I'm not sure if it's a, if it's an, a biography or, or if it's just a meditation on her or what. Okay, great. I'll look that up. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, you should do a spinster and writing a woman's life box set because they, they go perfectly well together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How, how did how did you first come to her? Um, I I think I found her obituary online too. At some point, it was it was a, several years later, um, mm-hmm. and and just and found that book and read it and was was astonished by it. And it's like she sees the secrets of our hearts. <laughs> so yes. yes, yes, yeah, it was amazing. So I, when I was reading Spencer, and I, I kept thinking Carolyn Heilman would love this book, and then you mentioned her, and it was it was a glorious <laughs> moment. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> 
Um, so I do think one of the great pleasures of reading biography is that we can are able to use stories of other people's lives to navigate our own, which is what you and Heilbrun are arguing. Um, but as you show, also to push back against what mainstream society and culture tells us to expect. Uh, so you mentioned the willingness to improvise rather than nail down a life. Can you talk a bit about that and about how biography might aid in this? Well, yeah, so let's see, I, I have, you know, early on when I was starting out as a writer, I was interested in biography and even looked into a life uh, writing program. It sounds like that's maybe similar to what you're doing now. And I, in the end, I ended up attending this different program instead at, at New York University in cultural reporting and criticism. But I felt a little bit afraid of biography because of the responsibility yeah. of uh, th th that it's so much work and it's so detail oriented. And I just thought, you know, my, whatever my strengths are, I'm still figuring them out, but details is not one of them. Mm -hmm. And if I blunder into somebody's life, I'm bound to get a lot wrong <laughs> and I don't want to do that. Um, and, and I, so it wasn't, I, then in time, I guess, like I, I read Nicholson Baker's you and I and Jeff Dyer's out of sheer rage and watching these writers take on somebody's life with all their subjectivity and not be worrying about, I mean, Nicholson Baker is like actually misquoting Updike throughout that book, you know, sh shamelessly. And, <laughs> and, and I thought that that was really interesting that, that as a genre that I found that really compelling and, and true to my own experience of reading biographies. I, I like to read biographies now, but particularly in my twenties, I was constantly reading biographies and I was doing it expressly to learn how to live and to see how these people had figured out how to do it. Um, so to, you know, and then I, I feel grateful that for many reasons that I was born in the era in which I was born. But one of them is that because of writers like Carolyn Heilbrunn and because of the second wave of the women's movement, there are so many biographies of women for me to turn to that there weren't back when my mother was growing up. You know, there would be like, I think I cite like a biography of Betsy Ross that I read in fourth grade or, you know, and how I couldn't believe that a woman who'd sewn a flag got a whole book to herself. But, you know, there really was this paucity of women's lives. And so I grew up in a time when there were so many more women's lives being written about. And it seemed to me that I, I was given the opportunity by virtue of when I was born that I could kind of pillage some of this work mm -hmm. and make it my own and, and show the subjective experience of the biography reader. Do you have a favorite biography? Oh, that's a great question. Um, do I have a favorite? I mean, I might have to say, you know, you know, what's funny about favorite books, right? Is that often it's when we read them and, and the younger we are, the more formative they are. So yeah. like the, the, the biography of Anne Sexton, I remember that really oh, the Diane, the Diane Middlebrook. Yes. Oh yes. yes that's yes. amazing. I really loved that one. And then I'm currently still reading, for some reason I keep putting it aside, um, Simone de Beauvoir's biography. Uh, oh. Deidre Blair, is that who wrote that? Ah, I think so. Yeah, and, and that's really well done. Um, so, yeah, and I, also, I, I liked Robert Lowell's biography a lot. Mm -hmm. I remember that too. But, um, yeah, and then, yeah, I'd say outside of the ones I read for my book. Yeah, writer's biographies are so fascinating. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Um, so towards the end of Spencer, Sp Spencer, Spencer, I can't say that. You wonder if women are people yet. And a year has passed since the hardback edition came out. Do you have any more thoughts on this question? <laughs> I know it's, it's such a load. It, it, I, I, I was putting that in as a rhetorical kind of com like provocative question. Um, but, you know, 
I mean, I, I do think things are changing so quickly, mm-hmm. but um, it's this this conversation around uh, around women and women's lives and the in the centrality of marriage has it's really taking off. So I, I do feel that there's much more expansiveness there, um, and yeah. But I don't know if I don't know if I have much more to add to it than that. I mean, in, in what I was trying to get at was this idea that I, I do think that marriage is still more pressureful, pressureful for women than it is for men. Mm-hmm. And that, um, and that because of that, because of our growing up with this idea that someday we'll get married, that the way that this plays into how we think about ourselves as desirable and choosable and attractive and, and what it tells us about our range of options in choices when we're setting out in a life, that that is one of the things that we'll be doing. It, it feels very limiting in a way that men are not as limited, that they, they really are free from the, um, the kind of agita that that can present. And I, you know, so one thing that's been interesting in, in the wake, you know, now that it's been basically a year since Spinster was published is, um, you know, watching the response to the book and, it's, I personally find it to be a very unprovocative book. It's, you know, like, it's very, it's questioning, it's reflective. I'm showing stories. I'm not being didactic. I'm not telling anyone what to do. Um, but it was received as if it were very controversial. And a lot of people took issue with me on every side of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been so interesting. And, and I think that has largely to do with the fact that we don't have enough unmarried women writing about their lives still so that when someone like me is, and that book is getting a lot of attention, I I think it's easy for there to be anger for women to say, well, wait a minute, that she's not speaking for me, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But that's, it's not my fault. It's, It's the fault of the marketplace not presenting enough variations on the voice of what it means to be a woman alone. And so I'm, you know, trusting and hoping that as time goes on, we'll just see more and more of these kinds of stories. And then we won't need one woman to stand in for all women, Mm -hmm. but we'll be able to see the multiplicity of experience. So your experience really was that it was expected to reflect the experience of all people? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, you know, and that was uh, tricky. It was, I think that also had to do with my, my 2011 All the Single Ladies article for The Atlantic, mm-hmm. because that was the cover of a, a national magazine of, with a photograph of me on the cover, because that went viral and was then around the world, so many people responded to it that there was an audience of people who were waiting for a book that was going to tell them about their lives. Mm-hmm. And I decided not to write that book. I didn't want, I felt like I, that contemporary journalistic approach was the one I wanted to take for the length of an article, but not one I wanted to take for the length of a book. And that I, I really wanted to go back and investigate my own influences and, um, and questions that I had been thinking about in an idiosyncratic way, as well as offer up the lives of these women, some of them famous, some of them unknown, to, you know, just bring them you know, bring them attention because I thought that would be interesting to a reader because it's always interesting to learn about lives you don't know about. Um, but also just as a way of animating history and the questions I was asking rather than doing it in a purely argumentative, expository 
or even journalistic way. Mm-hmm. I think I've just rambled in a kind of into no, a no, cul-de-sac. No, no it's, it's okay. absolutely an amazing way, I okay. think, to sort of pull these stories forward to another generation. Um, yes. Whereas they might be, someone might not pick up Hermione Lee's biography of Edith Wharton, um, but they might pick up your book because it looks cool and hip and interesting. And then that story sort of comes out of that and they, that might capture their attention. I think it's a great way of doing that. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. And it felt very important to me during the, uh, the response to the Atlantic article, you know, I, for, it seemed like months I had to trot around to all the news shows and television and radio and talk about this contemporary phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And it started to freak me out that people were treating this as a purely contemporary phenomenon because yeah. it's not, it's the result of centuries of change. And so it felt, I, I felt that's what I felt zealous about was I want to return this conversation to its historical context and show this younger generation of women where they're, where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And um, it, so exactly, exactly, exactly. As you said it, <laughs> I just wanted, yeah, to like pass along the history mm-hmm. in this kind of hip modern packaging. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Um, so what are you working on next? Well, I'm for the first time in my life, I'm trying some fiction, oh. which has been very strange. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's so different. Oh my, have you ever written fiction? Uh veiled autobiography that's, that's okay. called fiction. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so well, no, I ha- <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> I haven't even done that. And so just, I, I was, I just was forcing myself to make something up and it's been so strange to spend, you know, all day writing something where it has nothing to do with facts. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's so freeing that it's totally disorienting and I can't. <laughs> so, so I, I gave myself three months that I would do that. And th- that time is up. And I, what I've decided is, yes, that's a fun experiment that I wouldn't continue to do, but I need to return to nonfiction. I just feel safer and more myself. So I, I've been exploring a, a book about friendship, which is an extraordinarily broad topic, obviously. And so I've been trying to figure out uh my way in, but I, I'm really interested in what friendship is and means today mm-hmm. because it means and has been so many different things throughout history, depending on time and place. And so I'm thinking about it in a kind of spinster-esque way, mm-hmm. I guess, um, but figuring out what my treatment will be. But I, I want to try to create and um, sort of supply the reader with a, a critical apparatus uh, for which to think about friendship in her or his own life. Oh, that sounds fascinating. So we'll, we'll see if I, I don't know if I can pull it off, but that's what I'm noodling around with at the moment. <laughs> sounds promising. <laughs> thank you. I'm glad you think so. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been listening to an interview with Kate Bolick about her new book, Spinster, Making a Life of One's Own. I'm Olai Neaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>